I'm Dale Denwalt. And I'm Nuria Martinez Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. With deadly cold temperatures outside, many Oklahomans found themselves in the dark. Winter temperatures reached historic lows in Oklahoma. All parts of the state dipped below zero this week. Oklahoma City experienced temperatures not seen since before statehood. And during this record cold, thousands of Oklahomans lost electricity in their homes as the power grid struggled to keep up. Business writer Jack Money is with us today. Uh, as our lead energy reporter, Jack's been covering the utility crisis hitting our region. Jack, I think this week was the first time many people ever heard of the Southwest Power Pool. Uh, but as many people woke up without electricity this week, we became intimately familiar with the important role it has in our lives Tell us what the Southwest Power Pool is and what's been going on that's caused so much uncertainty. Well, it's one of seven um, federally overseen regional transmission authorities. Um, these regional transmission authorities are responsible for um, directing grid operations um, across the regions that they manage. In the Southwest Power Pool's case, um, it was originally created in 1941 as, as uh, World War II was breaking out. And its initial purpose was to make sure that mines that were operating a, a critical element in Arkansas had sufficient uh, power to be able to do their work um, without having to shut down periodically because there wasn't en enough electricity to do what needed to be done. Um, a decade ago, whenever I was on the energy beat for the Oklahoman, the, the Southwest Power Pool was not quite grown up into what it is today. Um, at that point, if I recall correctly, um, it, it um, oversaw load balancing um, uh, issues with the grid across parts or all of my guess off the top of my head, maybe four states, um, Arkansas, Oklahoma, uh, maybe Kansas, maybe a little bit of, of, of New Mexico and little pieces of Texas, but, but that was pretty much it. When I came back in 2018 and I looked at them, I went, whoa, uh, this, this, this thing doesn't look anything like what I remember. It, it, it manages a grid that covers parts or all of 14 states between Oklahoma and Canada. And so it still does the load imbalance stuff, which is, you know, why it was pretty much created in the first place. But one of the things that it got into doing as well is, is it, it, it got into uh, really forecasting uh, day ahead power needs and then identifying assets that could meet those needs. Um, and so it's been doing this for, for several plus years. Um, and um, it's all about in, ensuring reliability on the grid at the most economical cost 
that that uh, can be found. Um, and the the net result of that, um, in part, has has been that that reliability's been really really good, and um, costs have been really really affordable. You know, here in Oklahoma, we've been enjoying some of the lowest per kilowatt hour electricity cost in the nation, and a large part of that is is due to the work that the Southwest Power Pool does behind the scenes on, on a daily basis. Over time, and, and I can't cite the instances off the top of my head, but we've had some significant blackouts that have impacted parts of the United States um, over the course of, you know, the past 50 years. And so the federal government um, uh, created a couple of regulatory uh, agencies that, that are really interested in these types of things. And one of them is the Federal Energy Regulatory uh, Commission, which, which oversees these RTOs. And one of the things that, that FERC has required these regional transmission operators to do as in response to these big outages that they've had is, hey, you need to do everything that you can to prevent those kind of big outages from occurring in the future. Um, and so they have set out certain status levels that these grids have to maintain when it comes to power. Um, under normal operations, you know, er everything's cool. Um, whenever things start to get tight, then they do this, what they call this level one uh, emergency energy alert, um, where they kind of notify everybody, hey, um, we're going to need all the resources that we can put together to meet need in the coming hours, days, you know, whatever it may be, because we think things might get tight. When you go to a level two, then you're in a situation where things are tight and you're actually having to be on the verge of dipping into reserves that FERC says that you have to maintain. And when you hit level three, like we did earlier this week, what that means is, hey, we're dipping into the reserves and we can't guarantee that we can keep, you know, a constant reliable source of power across the entire grid. And in order to prevent the entire grid from going down, and remember, this covers 14 states um, um, and, you know, thousands of uh, utilities and electric cooperatives and city municipal electric systems uh, that all take power from this thing. If, if that entire thing were to collapse, it might take, you know, a week, a month to get everything back up. So you definitely don't want that to happen. And your only alternative is to reduce load on the grid. And so you have to do these curtailments. Yeah, well, uh, I wanted to mention um, uh, a, a real sort of disparity that people are seeing to our, our neighbors with the South. Um, people in Texas, millions of people, uh, have gone without power uh, down in Texas. And, and uh, a lot of the electrical system in that state uh, is not uh, under SPP. It operates under a different energy framework. Um, now, a, a big question that I think people are, are asking their, themselves is, is why is the electrical grid in Oklahoma – Texas and, and any other parts of the state experiencing this, why uh, is the grid so unequipped for temperatures this cold? Is it 
the part of the country we're in? That's part of it. As far as differences between what's going on in Texas as opposed to what's going on in the Southwest uh, Power Pool, uh, that's a very, it sounds like a simple question to ask, but the answer is extremely complex. Um, You know, Texas operates an entirely deregulated electrical system. In Oklahoma, electrical service is regulated. You don't have the same level of of cohesiveness and coordination that that you have in a regulated type of environment that we do. So so that's part of it. Um, the other part of it uh, has to do with economics, and um, you know, particularly over the past decade, the cost for renewables has come down dramatically. You're talking about that's like wind and. Uh geothermal solar and it's especially true for solar so um over the footprint of the southwest power pool nobody's built you know any new coal plants nobody's built any new nuclear power plants they've all been building you know wind and solar and eventually we're going to start to see some battery come on um but again that has to do with economics um, as prices for those battery storage systems come down, you'll start seeing more and more and more of that get added. Well, the same thing's been going on in Texas um, over the past 15 years as well. You know, no new coal, certainly no new nuclear, um, but a lot of renewables. So renewables are great when they're available. We all enjoy the economic benefits of them. But usually in the wintertime, you don't have nearly as much wind as you do in the spring and the fall. Um, so, uh, uh, so winter is not, you know, particularly the best time for, for wind generation anyway. Um, and then let's consider solar. Uh, while solar was out there, and you think about the weather conditions, it was cloudy, there was no sunshine, and it would have been very difficult for any solar facilities in Oklahoma to generate any electricity. And if course, conditions were similar across the Great Plains, then, then you had that problem as well. So what does that leave you? Well, it leaves you natural gas, which is a great generating source to pair with renewables because, you know, renewables don't slowly ramp up and slowly ramp down. They're either there or they're not. And the nice thing about natural gas is, is that when you all of a sudden need an additional 30 gigawatts to put on the grid, because wind dropped off or because the sun went down, you can just flip a switch and it's there. Coal is um, a little bit more problematic. You can't just flip a switch, but you know the amounts of natural gas that were needed to offset the loss of, of, of renewables um, uh, was massive and it created shortages across multiple systems. Um, and I had a story in today's paper, visitoklahoman.com, if you want to read it. Um, but it talked about how when you run into these kind of weather conditions, it impacts both ends of, of, of our gas system here in the country. It, it, it impacts producers um, who get the stuff out of the ground at wells, because oftentimes when that, when that gas comes up, it's got water in it, and water freezes. And when water freezes, then your gathering system quits gathering gas. You know, what's the answer? 
we're all going to be talking about it five years from now and trying to figure that out. Uh, should we be adding, you know, nuclear generation to the Great Plains uh, in a meaningful way uh, to stave off this type of situation in the future? Or should we be building more coal plants? You know, I don't know what the answer is. Um, you can build all the windmills and solar farms that you want. But again, if conditions aren't right, then you're going to run into this problem again in the future. So, I mean, I think a question that a lot of people have, you know, rolling blackouts when the temperatures are in the negatives outside is obviously not the goal. That's not ideal. Um, Far from it. Um, So when we ask why is our electrical grid so unequipped for temperatures this cold, it, it just makes me think, you know, this is a Southwest power pool that connects North Dakota, Montana, parts of the country that do regularly get these kinds of temperatures. But when it happens in Oklahoma, that's when we start seeing these blackouts. And is it, pardon me if I oversimplify here, but is our electrical grid set up in a way that assumes that there will not be this kind of demand down here so they're able to provide that service in other regions within the Southwest Power Pool. It's just when you're sitting in your home and it's, you know, almost zero degrees and you're freezing, it makes you wonder just how does this happen? How how do we let it get to this point? And like you said, it's going to be something we're pondering for a while. It will be, but keep in mind that, that, that Oklahomans were not the only ones sitting in the dark shivering. So are people in North Dakota. Um, whenever the SPP issues a level three alert and says curtail, that's not just directed at utilities in Oklahoma. That's directed at utilities across its entire footprint. So it's it's not like it's directed to you know a particular area of its service where it it thinks it's having an issue. It's they're trying to to you know, drop the demand across the entire grid. Now, obviously, you're going to have to have curtailments in areas where you have more people living than you do in other areas. So if there are almost 4 million Oklahomans, and I'm sorry, I don't know the population of Wyoming off the top of my head, but it's probably not 4 million, right? I think it's about 600,000. Yeah. So think about the difference in power consumers there. And, and so, yeah, you know, obviously places that are more heavily populated are going to be more heavily impacted by these kinds of things because you're going to save a lot more power if you curtail in a heavy use area than you are if you curtail in a light use area. But that doesn't mean SPP was only targeting heavy use areas for this everybody was getting hit with it. That makes sense what you just said that, you know, in some of these northern states, the population is low enough that even when they do have to use their electricity heavily in cold temperatures, it's not quite the same when the entire grid is experiencing frigid temperatures like this. Well, and the other thing that I would point out as well is is, is that you know, in North Dakota, for example, they build homes far differently than they do here. Um, there, you know, all of their infrastructure is deep underground to prevent it from freezing. Um, here, 
not so much and you know if you want to keep your water running in your house then you've got to drip your pipes and you've got to open your cabinets and you've got to try to keep the heat you know uh, as comfortable as, as you can because you don't want your pipes to freeze up right um, and and so you know that's another difference that that maybe people don't stop and realize is is, is that code does not require us um, or historical precedents does does not require our home builders to build homes the same way that they do up there um, because the environments are just so drastically different. You, you were talking about natural gas a lot earlier. Um, you know, even if the power goes out, some people have natural gas service for heating and certain home appliances. Uh, but even natural gas was in short supply this week. So I'm just curious, what are customers supposed to do in this situation? It almost seems like kind of a perfect storm when both natural gas and electricity are, are they're asking to conserve those. Well, it seems like a perfect storm, but it goes back to the economics that, that, that I was referring to. Um, you know, as power providers have moved more and more towards using relying on renewables, um, to supply a significant amount of their, their energy, they've also began relying more and more on natural gas-fired generating units to uh, provide the balancing uh, energy that they need to, you know, take care of situations whenever renewables aren't available. So you've see, seen this natural trend, you've seen this kind of this trend towards, you know, like I said, nobody's building coal plants. Um, if you're going to build a fossil fuel-fired uh, energy generator, you're going to be doing it using natural gas, right? Um, so what happens in this type of situation? Well, um, you know, as electricity gets tight, more and more natural gas is needed to supply electricity to keep the grid stable, all right? At the same time, everybody's heat is running double time because temperatures are extremely cold, and it's hard for us to keep our houses warm. So you've got that demand going on at the same time. And it is kind of a perfect storm. I mean, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, um, and, and, and I went through a curtailment, um, I think, Monday morning. Um, and I was out for, oh, uh, probably a little bit over an hour. Uh, I, I don't remember exactly. And the reason I don't remember exactly is because I have a, a backup generating system that I actually just got installed uh, a couple of weeks before all this unfolded. That's the good news. The scary thing about it was is that guess what it runs on? Natural gas. So, you know, I was thinking, well, there might be a situation where my electricity goes out, but I don't have enough natural gas pressure in my line for the generator to work. And, um, you know, if I if if I didn't really think about it, that might make me extremely angry. You know, why did I spend so much money on a on a generator that's not going to do me a bit of good um, whenever the power goes out? Well, this is not a normal power outage situation. Usually, when our power goes out, it's because of an ice storm. Yeah, we get cold temperatures then, but typically not like we saw this week, right? Um, or because of a thunderstorm you know, that knocks down, you know, high winds that, that knock down lines or knock down trees or something like that. And usually natural gas is impervious to all of that. 
So I think by and large, I still made a good decision. And by the way, it worked. And so I was very happy. <laughs> uh, Jack, yeah, um, back to this, uh, back to the level two, level three uh, issues and, you know, your, your power going off unexpectedly. Um, there was uh, some sort of uh, announcement, I guess, that, that rolling blackouts could happen at any time. And, and that news did seep out, but a lot of people were frustrated because they didn't have any warning whatsoever that, uh, that OG&E was going to turn off their power. Um, why has there been this lack of communication to OG&E customers and, and how has the company responded to those concerns? Well, let's pretend like I'm SPP and let's pretend like you're OG&E. And let's just say that I just reached a level three alert. Dale, you need to shut off power right now or the entire grid's going to collapse. Okay? Um, you don't have a choice. And, and you may have, you know, you may have an internal plan about, you know, what, what you're going to address immediately. But you don't have time to, it, it's not like, Dale, um, I want you to shut off power to preserve the grid as soon as you can notify everybody that's going to be impacted. It's, it's, you don't have time for that. Um, you've just, you've just got to do it immediately. Um, so that's, that's, that's point number one. Point number two is that we have never, the Southwest Power Pool has never gone to an energy, uh, an, an, an energy emergency alert level three before. In its entire what 80 year history okay it's never had to do this before so this is uncharted territory and I guarantee you they're going to be looking at all kinds of different issues after this event is over um, they're going to say okay what did we do how did we do it what didn't work what did work but, you know, what could we do better? And I guarantee you customer notification is going to be one of those things that come up. Um, but, but in that type of situation, you know, it's, it's, it's not like, well, okay, you know, spend five minutes to notify impacted people before you do this. It's like, you got to do it right now. Um, and so maybe what SPP comes back and says is, hey, utilities, in case we ever encounter this situation in the future, you need to have a system in place and ready to go to send out notifications in a timely fashion if we have to do this in the future. And, you know, we'll, and we'll, we'll go from there. Again, you know, I went through that curtailment so I can speak from experience. I got no pre-notification that my power was going to go out. But within probably 30 seconds of after it had gone out, I did receive a notification from OG&E that there was a power outage in my area. And, and then I got the customary, you know, we expect that your power will come back on in X amount of time, you know, email after that. So there were notifications. It's just there wasn't an opportunity for them to send one before they had, had to begin to balance the load. And, and um, yeah, they'll, they'll probably look at that and think about ways that that might be able to be better done in the future.
Well, Jack, thank you so much for taking us through what seems to be a really complicated issue, but uh, is affecting every energy customer in this 14-state region. So, Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. You know, the parting thought that I would leave you with is that is is that this it, it is it's a very complex system. There are a lot of moving parts. It goes on every day behind the scenes, and it's something that absolutely nobody spends any thought thinking about until something like this happens. Thanks for joining us this week. This podcast is possible because of the Oklahomans subscribers. We encourage you to subscribe if you can. You can read these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.